Hey, good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. Everybody all right? Yeah? Excellent. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are honored that you are here with us today. And I, I want to let you know just about a couple of things uh, coming around the corner for us that we'd love to invite you into before we jump to our topic at hand for the day. Uh, first of all, this Thursday night, uh, you may know that we have Thursday gatherings and Sunday gatherings. You may not know that Thursday gathering, we do the same thing that we do on Sunday. So it's like another Sunday gathering time that just happens to happen on Thursday. Uh, we don't offer kids ministry programming because of the time of the gathering, but otherwise it's the same sermon and liturgy that you'll hear a few days later on Sunday. So if you want to get the first take at it, you can come on Thursday. And this Thursday, uh, we're going to spice things up a little bit with some added features on Thursday night. This might be a great chance for you to check it out or to bring a friend with you. Uh, from 6 to a little bit before the gathering, we're going to have food trucks here. So if you want, come straight from work, get a bite to eat, hang out, build some community, and then jump into the gathering at 7.30. In the gathering, we've got two special guests in the form of a couple of musical artists who are joining us from out of town. Uh, John Tibbs and then Eric Marshall, whose project is called Young Oceans. Uh, they're coming to us from Nashville and New York City, and they'll be providing the music for the night. Uh, we will do uh, the sermon for the week, so you'll still get the next big idea in the series that we're beginning today. But then after our gathering, we're inviting everybody to the Lauber, which is a new restaurant that has opened up in the East Bank neighborhood. They've got a big old patio. They've got cornhole. They've got Jenga, uh, food and drink. And we'd love to keep the party going at the Lauber later that night. So uh, that's the plan for Thursday. We'd love to see you there. One more thing before I forget, though. We're going to pass some baskets around in case you'd like to make an offering. Our, our greeters are so patient. They just stand there staring at me with smiles on their face, wondering if I'm going to remember the offering. Um, great. You can make an offering if you'd like to. The other thing uh, coming up is tables, and tables happen in the life of our church as a way of uh, going more deeply into community with a few other people. So if you join a table, you're basically deciding that you're going to share a meal and some intentional conversation roughly twice a month for the next season. And uh, this is not a place where we sneak in some curriculum or Bible study or whatever. We, we actually believe in the power of what can happen when people who are walking in the same direction share a meal, and then dig into some of the questions that we actually just talked about in our last series, like, where are you and what do you want? And those are invitations for you to open up at whatever level you'd like to, and to share a little bit of your life with some other people around a shared meal. So tables are launching for the fall right now, and we don't want you to miss your chance to be a part of it. Go to southbendcitychurch.com and look for tables on the menu there, and you'll see a growing directory of new tables that are opening up. You'll be able to look at the map. Maybe geography is how you're going to pick your table. You'll be able to look at when they're gathering. And some of these tables have uh, like a particular spin. Like some of them might be like for married couples or unmarried people or whatever. Some of them might be kid-friendly, which means that they've got a space in the home that's safe for kids to hang out while the adults are doing their thing. Uh, but tables are launched, and we don't want you to miss it. Uh, because we don't keep launching them constantly. We launch them just a couple of times a year. So if you don't get in on one now, it might be a few months before you have the next chance. So don't miss out on it. Uh, you can email tables at southpincitychurch.com if you have any questions about that experience. And I also want to remind you that we, we have middle school and high school tables as well that meet here in our building every other Sunday night. And we just got those started. Uh, we're really excited about that. We've even added uh, some furnishings to the mez level up there so that our students can have a better time hanging out in this space. But tables are coming, and we don't want you to miss it. Sound good? Yeah, okay, awesome, cool. All right, uh, let's turn the page. We spent the last few weeks uh, talking about sacred questions. Today we're going to turn to a, a central idea that has shaped Southland City Church from the beginning. It's actually one of our mantras, but instead of just hitting it for a moment, we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking this mantra at greater depth. Uh, the mantra is everyone an icon. If you've been here before, you might have heard us say that we really believe that you, your life, your story, your body, who you are is sacred. 
and that having you in this community is a gift to us, it's because we believe this. It comes from the first pages of Scripture, from the very, very beginning, where God is creating men and women, and God says, Let, let's make humanity to bear our sacred image. Now, if you've heard me teach this mantra before, you've, you've probably heard me point out that in the ancient world, it wasn't a new idea that a human being could bear the sacred image of God. That was actually an idea that you can find all over the ancient Near Eastern world. What's unique is that it seems that in every other expression of this idea, there is one person in the society that bears the image of God. It's a dude, and it's the king. But that seems to be the consensus in the ancient world. Kings bear the image of God. And then Genesis 1 comes along with this radical idea that democratizes it and gives it away to everyone, saying that every man and every woman is a bearer of the sacred image that's here for the vocation, that like, your job is to live out the life of God in the world, to bear the character of God for the world, to do the kinds of things in the world that God would do God's self, right? So that's, that's like a really big, high calling, and it's given to everyone and so we around here talk often about everyone an icon. Hopefully you hear that and it lifts your head a little bit, right? Maybe your, your shoulders come back and your chest expands a little bit. And hopefully it's a radical reshaping of the way that we see one another, especially the people that we don't see very well, right? So everyone an icon um, is a big idea and it's been with us from the beginning. But of course, one of the fundamental problems with this mantra, this big idea, is that it only takes a minute to look around and discover that we don't often live up to that, right? that we, uh, we so often don't bear the character of God in the world, that the world doesn't look the way you might think it would look if it were filled with billions of people who live out the, the heart or the character or the life of God in the world. It doesn't take long in the headlines to see that, and it doesn't take long in our individual lives to see that, right? So you might think that the action moves on from us, that maybe God had another better idea at some point, right? And sometimes that's a way of reading the Jesus story, like, the scriptures say that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so that one way of reading that is we sort of lost our chance at that. So now it's all relocated with him. And the best that we could hope to do is be forgiven of all the mess that we've created. But the problem is that's not actually the sense of the scriptures when Jesus comes. The sense of the scriptures when Jesus comes is that he has come to bear the image of God so that we could get back to our job of bearing the image of God, so that he could teach us, so that he could lead us back into that. And if you don't believe me, let me make my case with just one simple uh, little verse in John chapter 14. This is Jesus speaking to his friends. And he says to them, very truly I tell you, which is an ancient way of saying for reals. <laughs> Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. You catch that? Like... Jesus is saying, you, you don't get to just relocate all this with me. I'm still calling you out. I'm still asking you to live up to this. I'm, I'm still believing this for you. By the way, I'm going away. So if you don't pick this up, if you don't carry this forward, then, like, who are you looking for? This is, this is the calling on your life still to bear the image of God for the world. This to us uh, means that as a starting point to say everyone an icon is an assertion of profound dignity. And today we want to talk a little more about the dignity of this big idea and the way that Jesus seems to be moving through his time and place uh, on, on like a mission to see and call out the dignity of people, to have them lift their heads, especially when their own experiences or the world around them or the systems that they inhabit have waged war against their dignity. You, if you start reading the Gospels looking for this, you see Jesus moving everywhere looking for this kind of thing. 
So we want to talk about dignity as a starting point for this big idea of everyone an icon. Um, to do that, though, I want to bring a friend up here. I was talking uh, with a member of our community about uh, this series, and I was asking her to help me think through some of these ideas. And the more we talked, the more I thought, the conversation we're having on the phone here, we should just have it in our gathering together and, and bring this into the whole community. So uh, we're going to get into this with uh, a dear friend that I'm excited for you to spend some more time with. Will you please welcome Beth Grable? Hey, good morning. Hey, Beth. Welcome to the Sacred Rug. Thank you. I know I love it. It's square. It's square, yes. It's a special rug. It is. It's I hard to find those, right? I, it is hard to find those. <laughs> uh, hey, Beth, before we get into this, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, because some of the community may not have that record. Yeah, sure. So I'm Beth Grable. Um, I've been a part of this community for the past 10 months. And already, um, South Bend feels so much like home to my family, because I think of this community here. So, um, yeah, I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, so that's where my roots are, the Lancaster-Hershey area, if you're familiar with that area. And then I lived a little bit of my life in Southern California, and now we're here in South Bend because my husband is actually on staff here at South Bend City Church. We have two boys. They're 14 and 16, so ninth and 10th grade, and they go to school here in town. Yeah, tell so. us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so the work that I do, and... Um, you know, I wrestle with the imposter syndrome sometimes when I talk about the work that I do because, number one, I love it, and number two, um, I backed into some of this work. So some of the work that I do is leadership development, and that's my background, like working with leaders and organizations, helping them be the best versions of themselves. And then the other half of the work that I do is creative development, so I work with authors and with publishing houses. Um, around material, book material, so authors who are looking to write their story or authors who have written a book and somebody in their local community says, hey, this would be a really great book to go through with my team at work or with my small group or my table group at church, and so I create resources. It's basically asking questions in both areas. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Yeah. So, uh, so you and I uh, were kicking around this series and thinking about how we could take everyone an icon and yeah. understand it more deeply. Um, and, uh, and we began to have a conversation about some of the ways that we see this in Scripture. Uh, we'd love to get into these characters. Um, Before we do, I think I remember you asking me to preach, and I was like, I am not a preacher. That P, there was something about that P word that was like, oh, nope, that's not me. I, mean, <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I still think you're a preacher, but go on. Well, thank you. So I said, I gladly have a conversation. And we have a witness, because Jay's roommate was a part of that conversation, that's right. too. <laughs> that's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I said, like, I'd have a conversation with you, because I love to have conversations. And so here so we are. So this is our, our, our compliments here. Yeah. yeah. Aren't yep. you guys glad Beth is here with us? <laughs> yeah, excellent. Cool. So let's, uh, let's dig into some of these... Um, interactions that came to mind uh, between Jesus and people where he seems to be like looking for the dignity in them and calling it out. Yeah. Uh, let's begin in John chapter 4. Maybe I'll read this and maybe you could then begin to sort of unpack it for us. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. So John chapter 4, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? 
And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. So it's an interesting interaction. Uh, what, what stands out to you? What do you see when you think about this? Yeah, well, I first think about my own personal filter. So I grew up in church and a church community that maybe tended to paint a little bit more of a black and white picture of scripture. And so I think when I read this in preparation for today, I thought like, wow, Jesus isn't actually shaming her. And all along I was thinking, Jesus is calling her out. Yeah. And he's sort of, in my words, shaming her to some yeah. degree because of the life that she's lived so far. And when you read this, mm -hmm. you're like, that's actually not what he's doing. Yeah, so wh why do you not read it that way now? Right. Because I think that I understand a little bit more of the cultural context, mm -hmm. right? And I also hear Jesus asking her a question or basically saying, if you knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, like Jesus actually isn't giving her a list of things that she needs to change to interact with him, mm. right? He's, yeah, right, right. Right? Yeah. Um, but I think the cultural context is the scripture says, you know, Jews and Samaritans didn't interact. Mm -hmm. um, in her day, you know, it was, it was maybe okay for rabbis to, to excuse two divorces or three divorces, but definitely not onto the fourth or fifth partner in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And um, so I just think there was maybe a lot more going on there than I knew about, yeah. you know? I've, yeah. I've heard this too, that like, um, that when you read about a woman divorced five times, right. that we kind of take our modern um, experience of marriage and divorce and, and put it on the text. Yep where that, you know, hopefully is two empowered people, you know, husband and wife who are making their own decisions. But of course, in this time and place, right, like a marriage is probably the only hope for a woman to be economically empowered or even safe mm -hmm. in the world. Divorce is something that seems like men are empowered to do to women. And it's almost like a way of just discarding a woman when you're done with her. And then she's kind of like her only hope is to probably find another man to take her in because women just don't experience the same kind of economic empowerment that men do, right? Right. Yeah. And so then you think, like, so what kind of person was the fourth or fifth husband? Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Uh, this man who is welcoming her into a, some kind of marriage relationship mm -hmm. or who knows if it was actually an invitation, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's I just, funny. Like, I mean, I, I said this on Thursday, and I didn't mean it to be crass. I, I actually feel like the way that I've heard this preached is there's this woman, and Jesus goes to talk to her, and he's talking to her about living water and salvation that's in him and then she wants to know more and, and then it's like yeah but you're a slut yeah that's i mean i don't mean to be crass about that that's actually the kind of moral sentiment that i've seen characterized around this woman but knowing that this is a world where a woman who's been divorced is a woman who's been discarded mm -hmm. so a woman who's been divorced five times is a woman who's been discarded five times used and then discarded jesus it's a very different reading right jesus is like I want to tell you about the life that I have for you and the gift that I want to give you. And she gets curious and she says, can we, can we press into that? I would, I would like to learn more about that. And then the next thing he does is, but first we need to have a conversation about the way that you've been thrown away. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a very different reading, right? It is a very different reading. And I think whether, you know, gender aside, yeah. when you have been oppressed for someone who maybe is part of the oppressor group to basically look at you and say, I see you yeah. and I hear you and I'm here with you. Like how powerful is that, right? Yeah. yeah. And we don't have the text on the screen, but it just strikes me that her next move is to run into the village and talk about him. Right. Which you probably don't do if her experience is shame, right? Right. She must have had an experience of I've been seen for, for my story, for who I am. Yep. And I want to tell everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. beautiful. Uh, should we move on to yep. uh, this next character, Matthew 9? Will you read this? Uh, yeah, I will. So we're going to move on to Jesus and the bleeding woman from Matthew 9. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that moment. So... I think, again, I see the power of Jesus actually look, turning and looking. Turning into, saw her. Yes, he yeah, saw yeah. her. He yeah. saw her and he called that out. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this before we go on? Yeah, so one, one big thing that stands out to me is that, um, that this woman, too, was experiencing something like she hadn't chosen it, right? Right. But that by virtue of the way her body wasn't working quite the way she wanted it to, she's excluded because a woman bleeding in this time right. is excluded from religious life, social life. She's impure in a sense. I don't really mean that right, but like the social connotation around her bleeding is that she's impure. Absolutely. And it leaves her on the outside looking in from all these things. I think about the bravery yeah. of her to touch when yep. she's been told that her touch like isn't good because she's impure and it transmits that. Right. Again, so much about the cultural context, yeah. right, to understand this. What's really interesting about this story is it actually shows up again in Luke. And Luke is a physician, so he's very precise and very detailed, and he sheds some really interesting light on this story. So let's look at it in Luke. Luke 8, 43 through 48. Jay, do you mind reading this? Yeah, sure. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So what I love about this passage is that it's kind of uh, what we've been talking about, right? Sacred questions. And how Jesus always shows up and asks a sacred question. Or not always, but a lot of times. He shows up and he asks a question that's really powerful and really disruptive. And here he says, who touched me? Right? He's Jesus. He probably knows who it was. But he asks the question, who touched me? And then it sounds like he let this awkward pause hang in the air. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, like I, I, want you to, I want you to show yourself so that... Right. You can fully stand up here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but, what, are you, what are you here? Well, what strikes me in, in, this, in the way Luke tells it is um, that everybody's touching Jesus. It literally says the crowd is bumping up against him. Yeah. There's, there's all of the, the sort of mass of humanity around him. His disciples are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody's touching him. Like, you're in the middle of a mob, it sounds like. But some, like, he, he's so tuned in. There's one person who's reaching out in need of healing. One person who maybe believes, 
has held on some enough shred of hope that she is worthy of healing. Mm -hmm. And he says, your faith has healed you. Like, I yeah. want to see the person who's, who believes in their own dignity because it's actually important, right? Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think when we understand this passage in its fullness, we understand that, like, everybody was pressing against Jesus. There are some translations that say, like, he was hemmed in. Mm -hmm. And so that's, like, that's a tight space, yeah. right? And we also know that, uh, that this woman, like, some of the different transcripts say that she... Um, wasn't able to be healed. And so she probably had, you know, she was probably on her very last ounce of hope mm -hmm. um, reaching out to Jesus and that she actually didn't touch Jesus. She didn't touch him in a way that his body could feel it. She mm -hmm. actually touched the edge of a piece of his garment. Mm -hmm. um, and for him to, to just turn around and acknowledge her in that way when everybody's pressing against him yeah. was really powerful. I think about, like, when I, the, the kind of person who knows exactly what they are here for and who they are looking for. Yep. His, his ability to like, in the middle of the crowd, like stay focused on a, a person who is asking for their own dignity to be restored through yeah. healing. Like yeah. it, it just seems to matter to him, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Even when his closest friends are saying, let's keep moving, yeah, you know, this is right. too crowded. Yeah, he's gonna yeah. stop everything for this woman. Yeah, I love absolutely. That. Uh, should we talk about the Canaanite woman? Yeah, sounds great. Um, let's read. go to Matthew 15, yeah. you wanna read that? Yeah, I'll read this one. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came from that vicinity, or a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Man, I love that. When she's like, yes, it is, Lord. You yeah. know, I think, what faith? But courage. This is uncomfortable, though, first, right? It is, yeah. Like, Jesus is, he, he's, at least, he's going along with an ethnic line and then referring to the people outside that line as dogs. Yeah. This is really uncomfortable at first. Do you feel that, the tension in this? It totally is. I think this is the first time, if I'm being completely honest, that I've actually sat with this passage. Mm -hmm. Because before, it, that to me is like almost painful to read. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And so I would just pass, pass through. Yeah. You know, like yeah, there's, totally. yep. there's probably something else to see or hear. And I, I'm not seeing it or I'm not hearing it. So I'm just going to pass through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the same um, initial response to this text. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah what else? Well, so, so I have a theory about this, and this might be me um, trying to resolve the tension of it, which can sometimes lead to bad interpretations. But I guess my, my thing is, like, the, the Jesus that you see in the scriptures, A, he seems to be radically insisting on the dignity of people. Right. And especially when um, other people or a system or a rule or a culture have dismissed or discarded, it seems like that's where he's always, like, I want to bring that person into the center. I want to restore them. I want to yes. heal them. I want to celebrate them. I want them to know they're loved. I want them to know that they matter. Like, so you have that over and over and over and over again with Jesus. And then you have this. Um, and I, I don't think it's wrong to say, what's a, what's a reading of this moment that's consistent with the Jesus that we know 
from all the scriptures. I think that's a fair interpretive move, right? Right. Um, yeah, so, so I, I have a, a, a theory that I've been working out on this text, um, which is that, uh, well, first of all, Jesus says this thing again. You, you have great faith. Like, your faith has healed you. He keeps doing that kind of thing, right? And he says it so fast, right? He makes this statement, and then he says it so fast. Yeah, he goes, he goes from, you're a dog, to, you have great faith. Your request is granted, right? right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So I guess my, my here, okay, here's, here's a background idea that I have, which is, God can know about our dignity all day long, and it doesn't do us any good until we know about our dignity. Hmm. Right? God can know what's true of us yep. all day long, but until we know what's true of us, it just doesn't do a lot of good, right? And so I wonder if Jesus is like, he's walking through this world with all of these systems and experiences and structures and stories that have wounded people and dismissed people and broken people. And he's, he's like looking for anything he can do to, to correct the story that we're telling ourselves, right? So here comes this woman who, according to the rules, is sort of out of bounds because of just who she is. She's Canaanite. She's not Israelite. Right. And she has the, the gall, the audacity to be like, I think I'm a part of the story too. And I, I almost think, I think Jesus is like, yes. Let's, let's, let's keep going. Like, are you sure? Like, have you ever had a teacher that pushed you even though you're on the right track? Because they, they want to, like, strengthen your resolve around the right idea. Mm -hmm. So he's like, but don't you know that, you know, you're a dog? And she's like, I don't know. Even the dogs get something from the table. And then I just think he's like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I've been looking for that kind of faith. And then he, like, he leaps at it. Woman, you have great faith. The request is granted. And her daughter's healed at that moment. I think he's... I think he's sort of playing a teacher's game with this woman and with the other people, right? What do you think about that? I love that idea. I mean, the first time I heard that kind of interpretation was in conversation with you. And it was just like, yes, like uh, last, was it last week that mm -hmm. we were also talking about an interpretation? Um, remind me again. Oh, in, in our teachings? In yeah, our when teaching. we did Jesus asleep in the boat? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, I, I just had never even entertained that thought that, like, oh, maybe Jesus actually has a sense of humor. Uh, and maybe, yeah, yeah. He... maybe he's faking it in that right, moment. Right, right. <laughs> maybe he's faking it in that moment. Or maybe he's, like, enticing her, drawing her out so mm. that not just, maybe so she hears herself, but that mm -hmm. so other people hear her as well. Yeah, you know? right. Because yeah. he's also, he's probably, right, he's got his disciples around him. And so right. he, maybe he's kind of playing along with the way they see things. Right? They're like, oh, yeah, that's, that is how it goes, right? Yeah. And then she really pushes in, and he's like, now nah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love it. So yeah. we have one more. Yeah, should we go on? Yeah. Uh, this is, um, so this is uh, just in the same, like, area of Matthew's gospel. This is a story that some of you might have heard before. This is uh, Peter walking on water, but let's kind of work through the text. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Yeah, what do you see when you're reading this in light of the conversation we're having today? Yeah, you know, I see something different this morning than, uh, yeah. than Thursday. I actually see that it wasn't uh, walking on water that made Peter afraid, it was the wind 
So like there he is walking on water and it says something about the wind kicking up and that makes him afraid. Yeah. Let's go back a slide. Can we go back, Avery? Um, When he saw the wind, he was afraid. Yeah. Yeah. That just strikes me as like you're walking on water and the thing (laughs) that scares you is the wind that's kicking up. I I think I'd be so focused on my feet that I don't even know that I would be fully present to notice a kick up in the wind or see something happening yeah. in that moment, you yep. know? Yeah, how about for you? Well, so um, I heard somebody else teach this passage a while ago, and their reading of it uh, has really helped me. Their reading of it was that in the first century, if you're a disciple of a rabbi, the whole point of being a disciple of a rabbi is that you're aspiring to do and be the kinds of things that that person does and is. But that's the whole point of having a rabbi. You're a disciple of a rabbi. You're in their school, right? And so their first point was, of course Peter says, I want to get out there and do what Jesus is doing. That's actually the appropriate response when a disciple sees their rabbi doing something. And that, that, like, that helps me, first of all, because I think I can read this as Peter just being like a showboater, right? Like, I, I want to do the fancy stuff. It's like, well, I think maybe it's like, no, that's actually what you're supposed to do when you're a disciple of a rabbi, right? Right, absolutely. Um, that helps me have some compassion for Peter. Yeah. Because you can kind of like get down on Peter, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what's interesting, again, Jesus is just so calm, you yeah, know? Yeah. He's at least the way we read this. Yeah, and then Jesus doesn't like chastise him for trying to be like Jesus, right? I, like I can imagine right. a reading of Jesus yes. that maybe I grew up with, if I applied it in this moment, Peter's like, I want to do that too. And Jesus would be like, this is above your pay grade, dude. Stay in the boat. Right. <laughs> Right? That, that, or but, like, who do you think you are? Yeah, exactly. Right? Who, oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Who do you think you are? Yeah. But Jesus seems to be like, no, I think you were starting to figure out who you are, which is you're here to do what I do and be what I am in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I also wonder about the disciples' re- reaction to all this, right? So they mm-hmm. worshiped him. Uh, can we go back to that last slide, Avery? Yeah, they worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now, I, I used to read this thinking um, the, the, the special effects were what they were responding to, right? This very impressive thing where Jesus is walking on the water. And I'm not saying that wasn't impressive to them. But I've also, so to say you are the son of God is to say you are like God. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I've started to think that what they're responding to here is something in their heart knows that when they're in the presence of Jesus, they're in the presence of the one who sees them for who they truly are and is calling them out to do and be who they truly are in the world. Absolutely. And that, like, maybe the most godlike thing we can ever do is to see God in somebody else. So Jesus is out there in the water, and Peter says, can I come too? And she says, yeah, come on out here, man. And that maybe that's the glimpse of God that the disciples got, that mm-hmm. God's the one who says, yeah, come on out here. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this together. You're, this isn't above your pay grade. This is actually exactly what you're here for. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I say yes and amen to that. Yeah. I think it also makes me wonder, what did they say to Peter? Or what did they think <laughs> about Peter? Yeah, you right? And, and we did not script all of this, so these are real yeah. thoughts coming in real time yep. um, just as we have this conversation. But really, like, if they're acknowledging that, God is, or that Jesus is the Son of God, then what do they acknowledge about Peter? Yeah. You know, do they... Do they have a new respect for him? Do they walk a little taller, realizing mm-hmm. that they're part of that? Do they wrestle with jealousy or envy or comparison, right? Yeah. Because I, I really think that when we see someone else walking out their dignity and we haven't stepped into our own dignity, that we can so easily go to that place of comparison and envy and jealousy and even shame, you know, yeah. like I'm not living up to who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, whatever. totally. Yeah. I've heard, uh, have you guys ever heard of tall poppy syndrome? No. 
I think it's like an Australian phrase. Um, it, when there's a tall poppy in the field, that all the other poppies judge it. <laughs> it's like tall poppy syndrome, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. When there's somebody standing up and standing <laughs> into their, their, their real um, meaning and power and story in the world, right. and people who haven't found that yet, sometimes it can be really hard. Yeah. And come out sideways, kind of ugly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, hey, so you and I, uh, we talked about these scriptures, but you also uh, led the two of us into a conversation around our own biographies, which I really appreciate. You were like a, you're like a ninja. You're like, oh, now, I'm gonna, now we're, we're going to talk about our own stuff, <laughs> um, which is probably why you're in the work, line of work that you're in, because you're really good at that. Um, but yeah, you, you were really uh, vulnerable with me about mm. uh, some of the ways that, the unique ways that, that Knowing who you are and maybe having other stories told to you about who you are has been a part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can talk about uh, stepping into this idea of dignity or bearing the image of God, but I really wrestled with that for a long time. I'm in my early 40s, and I think it took until my mid-30s for me to really start to step into um, bearing the image of God and what does that look like for me, not just for everybody else mm -hmm. around me. And uh, there, I think that there are some limiting factors in life that tend to hold us back, and sometimes there are words spoken over us. Sometimes there are opportunities that, um, that are not ours to have because somebody else keeps us from those opportunities or just culture or society or whatever it is. But for me, um, as a middle schooler, high schooler, one of the words or phrases spoken over me was, Beth, you're going to be a great soccer mom. And there's nothing wrong with being a soccer mom. Um, I stayed home, I was a stay-at-home parent for quite a long time, but when you think it's the only choice that you have, mm -hmm. it feels really limiting. Like when it gets put on you? Right, when it's put on you, yeah. just like, you know, one of my dearest friends is this amazing business owner. She's maybe sold three or four businesses now, but she really wrestles with, like, the message she grew up with it was, you're going to be a great business owner just like your dad. And mm. so she wrestles with how she shows up. Um, socially or how she shows up in her own home mm -hmm. and what that dance looks like because she thinks, well, the best thing I have to offer this world is to be an amazing business owner, mm -hmm. you know? I think it's like if you if you play sports, you know, we, we're in college football season right now and it's like if you think that you're a wide receiver and your coach keeps telling you you're an amazing linebacker and you're just like, oh, but actually I want to play wide receiver. Like yeah, I'm really yeah. good. I'm really fast, yeah. you know? And But somebody keeps saying, no, this is who you are. This is who you are. You get to this place place where you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I am this. So mm. maybe all I have to offer the world is to be an, a really great soccer mom. And it is such a privilege as a stay-at-home parent um, to stay home with your kids. That is such a privilege, right? But when it's the only thing that you think you have to offer the world, then it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. So I um, really had to work through what does this idea of dignity, what does it look like to be a a bearer of the image of God. And I am grateful that I have people alongside me who really called out my dignity. Um, so one of those was my partner. You know, I am fortunate to have married a husband who believes the best about me all the time. And he would say, do whatever you want to do. Like, I just, I got to this place where I had extra energy to give outside of the way I was showing up mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. um, we did this uh, cool experience, a counseling and community experience with four other friends. There were six of us, and we walked through our journey line, our storyline, and shared just maybe where some of our limiting factors were holding us back. And so there were two counselors facilitating that process, and um, I just remember one of the counselors, um, his name was Ken, he looked at me and he said, 
you have got to be in so much pain because you are choosing to stay so small and that is not who you are. Like mm. you are actually a lot bigger than the way you've been living. And I, in that moment, I recognized I had been in so much pain. I had been um, feeling some emotional tension. I had actually been feeling um, a lot of physical pain. Mm. You know, I, I'm a big believer that our bodies keep score of the emotional and, and spiritual things that we walk through in our lives. And so I um, went through a season where I thought that twice, I thought I was having a heart attack. And then like two years later, I heard a friend describe what it was like to walk through a panic attack. And I thought on the inside, I was scared to admit it on the outside. I thought that was what I had mm -hmm. when I thought I was having a heart attack. I actually had a panic attack and I didn't even realize it. So I was just at this place where I was, you know, feeling small. And, and that was my choice, right? There's like, there's what's said to us, and then there's the message that we live with. Yeah. And the message that we live with, to some degree, is a choice. You know, we choose to hang on to that. Um, but there are also, there's pressure to stay in that tight box that we put around our lives. Mm -hmm. So I had the opportunity to go to grad school then um, because I had the freedom to be home with my boys and um, read a book. I'm a visual person, so I brought the book with me so you all could see it. But this book, Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer, and Parker basically, he's an educator and a writer, and he um, basically asks, is the life that I'm living the life that longs to live in me? Mm -hmm. And that question was so powerful for me because in that moment, I would have said no. Mm -hmm. Like, the life that I'm living is not the life that longs to live in me. And, and I think when there's dissonance, when there's a gap between the life that we're living and the life that we long to live, that, that's where, like, there is pain in that gap, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Ken gave you a new nickname. Oh, I don't know. Yes. Should, I don't know. We should call it a nickname. But tell right. So that counselor Ken, he said, "You are big, Beth." And like in that moment, for someone who already wrestles with body image a little <laughs> bit, I was like, "This is not very becoming," you know. But it kind of became this joke with the four friends, the six of us who went through that experience together. That it was like, "Go be big, Beth." I mean, even now they'll text me to be like hey, go be Big Beth. That's really cool that you had this opportunity to work with this author or mm -hmm. like coach mm -hmm. these people or whatever it is. And it's always like a go be Big Beth kind yes. of message, you know? I don't know that this gets to be your nickname in the whole community. <laughs> right. you, you get to decide Please. if you want right. that as a nickname. <laughs> but if you hear her husband calling her Big Beth, you can know that it's, you know. it's really loving and kind, right? <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah, and I think, uh, thank you for creating space for me to share that. Yeah. And um, I know that there have been limiting factors in your life, too. And yeah. would just love to hear what have been some of the things that have held you back. Yeah, um, I think when you and I talked about it a few weeks ago, that was kind of the first time I found this language for it. Um, but yeah, I think a couple, a couple of the real um, sort of pain points of knowing, like, who I am um, one of them has been um, belonging um, and, and longing for belonging. Uh, and then the other has been um, just, just an overwhelming fear, especially in earlier seasons of my life, that, that I'm just not going to make it, like, in general. Not that I'm not, not, not going to, you know, be the top of the org chart and make millions of dollars. I mean, like, make it at all. Like, I'm, I can't do life, you know? Um, and there's a story around all that. I mean, there's a lot of story, but... Uh, one kind of central story that really taps into both of those um, sort of limiting beliefs or fears is uh, a story that I've, I've shared in pieces before in this community. But uh, for me, uh, going into college, um, I bumped into some really painful recollections from some childhood trauma that, uh, that had not been, I'd not been conscious of for a long time. And then these memories kind of erupted in my life. And that was going right into college. 
and it completely knocked me off my game. Um, and so then, like, for college, uh, the first four and a half years of my eight-year undergrad degree. No shame. Story. No shame. No, sh no shame. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of part-time and a lot of uh, Fs in that story. Um, but, yeah, the, the, like, it got worse and worse and worse for me. So for four and a half years, a couple things were happening. I was, I was confirming my worst fear about not being able to make it because I literally couldn't make it. I literally couldn't get myself out of bed some days and get to class. Um, and then eventually ended up in a psych ward for 10 days where like, this, this is where I thought the story was going to go. I'm going to break down so bad that I just can't get up. And that's going to that's gonna be it. You know? like, so it confirmed a lot of those fears. Um, and then also the fear around belonging. Um, you know, mental health can be a really isolating experience too. Mm -hmm. And you have this, this inner world that is impossible to deal with. It's hard to share it with other people, and when you do, it can scare the crap out of other people. Mm -hmm. And so even the best-meaning friends sometimes don't know how to show up in your life when you're dealing with that, and it's not their fault. It's just, a lot of people don't know how to show up in that, but for four and a half years, it was like the more I would try to belong, the less belonging I experienced. And then on top of that, you know, if there's one place where I thought I would belong, or one person, in a sense, that I thought I would belong would be God. And for four and a half years, I, it even felt like God was just more and more sort of like stiff-arming me because I, I kept asking for help. And I didn't feel like I was getting any help. And again, that just it seemed to confirm uh, some of these worst fears of mine, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll say on the, on the belonging piece, um, it was a very, very specific encounter with Jesus that um, turned that whole experience on its head. And I've, I've shared this before, too, but it's really connected to what we're talking about today. Um, I, coming out of the hospital and, and being really angry at God, because I felt really abandoned and alone in that experience, I uh, found myself expressing that in a lot of ways. And one of the ways I was expressing that anger and frustration was by finding a psalm, a prayer from the Bible that, uh, that named my experience. And it's one of those prayers in the Bible that you're not sure what it's doing in the Bible because it seems really negative. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, God, you're not there for us and you were there for other people. You've abandoned me and you're fickle and I'm here getting spilled out like wax, kicked over like a can and people are mocking me and you're just up there doing nothing about it. And so I really, like, nursed the grudge with this song for weeks. Like, I meditated on my grudge, you know? It's, like, the, the best I could do. It's the closest thing I could, I could do to stay in a Christian in that season. I was like, I don't know what I believe about anything, but this prayer in my Bible is amen, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then it was after weeks of nursing that grudge that I realized that the psalm that I was praying that I had landed on was Psalm 22, which is the prayer that Jesus prays on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you mm -hmm. forsaken me? And that, for me, turned an experience of alienation into this incredible experience of belonging mm. and divine solidarity. And it renewed my experience of the Jesus who is always on the hunt for people who are having a hard time believing the truth about themselves mm. and that he's doing whatever he needs to do to help you believe the truth about yourself, which is that you're a sacred carrier of divine worth and that you're here for a divine vocation in the world. Yeah. I, it makes me think of a question that I haven't asked you, but when you think about those first four years, four and a half years, mm -hmm. when you felt like God was just absent and you're crying out for help, like now looking back, where was God mm. in that story for you? Uh, I was in a place where it was really hard to do too much damage to myself, and I really believe he got me there. Mm. Um, I thought I was going to go to a big state school, and I'm, I'm all for big state schools if that's the right thing for you. Yeah. It would not have been the right thing for me. I think, um, I honestly think if I had shown up at Bloomington, in that 
state of mind, I, th I think I really might not have made it because I think I just would have had access to, it would have been too easy to be too destructive in an environment like that in the condition sure. that I was in and yeah. the way that I got to Bethel, which is another story for another day. But it, I, I, I see that story very much as first of all, like God getting me to a place where I, I couldn't do too much damage. Yeah. And then, um, and then it was the friends who I realized looking back, they did a lot more than I could give them credit for in the moment, mm. and they were sustaining me in ways that I couldn't really see, but without them, I don't think yeah. it would have gone that way. Yeah, thanks for sharing Yeah, that. thanks for asking us. I'm also curious, so that was, you know, a couple years ago, and yeah. now we experience you really living out the fullness of who you are as a pastor and as a leader and as a, as a friend and as a community member. Like, how did you get from there to here, and, and, do, and do you still wrestle with any of that? Yeah, sure. Um, there's still remnants of all of that for sure, but I do feel like I have a different relationship to those stories I told myself. Okay. Um, and I think by far the biggest piece in the puzzle, um, and I feel like you kind of pointed it to it too, was the community around me. Sure. It was people around me who saw in myself the things that I couldn't see in myself yet, which I think if the church is anything, like we have to be the place where we see it in one another when we can't see it for ourselves. I see that God has made you in God's image. Mm -hmm. And there might be layers and, and lies and, and baggage that are impeding that. But if we can't, we have to see it in each other for each other, I think. And it was, I can think of so many faces and, and moments and conversations and experiences of community where it's people around me mm. who were seeing it first. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Um, all right, I want to I wanna turn for a moment to one other um, word or idea that we're going to work out through this series here. When we talk about the fact that we're here to bear the image of God, right, that we're here to live out the life of God in the world, and then the fact that we often don't, and the fact that there are beliefs and behaviors and experiences that war against that, right, um, there's a really good word for, for the beliefs and behaviors and experiences that war against the image of God in our lives, and it's a word that can be challenging depending on your experience of it, but I don't think we should give up on the word because I think it's really important mm -hmm. for, for this whole conversation. And the word is sin. A word for the beliefs, the behaviors, the experiences, and even the world that we create that wars against the image of God, mm -hmm. that wars against God, right? Now, um, maybe to help people with that, uh, a writer that really helps me with this word is a guy named Francis Spufford. He's written a book called Unapologetic, highly recommend it. And he, he's like, let, let me tell you what Christians mean by the word sin. And he uses a uh, very different language. Now, I'll warn you, if you read the book, Spufford is British. And apparently British Christians are allowed to use words that American Christians aren't supposed to use. <laughs> so full disclaimer, okay? And I've actually had to swap out one of those words. It's like the big one uh, in, in, the, in the passage that I'm going to show you now. Because it's the one you're afraid of it's dropping. It's literally the one I talked about last <laughs> yeah. week. It's my fear of dropping this word on a stage. And this week I'm referring to a passage that uses it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right. thanks. Thanks for yeah. calling that out. Yep. So here, here's Spufford talking about sin. If I say the word sin to you, I'm basically buggered, as we'd like to say in the Church of England. <laughs> it's going to sound as if I'm bizarrely opposed to pleasure. You'll corral me among the enemies of ordinary joy. So I won't do that because that isn't at all what I mean. What I and what most other believers understand by the word I'm not saying to you has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to screw up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to screw things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff, 
Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. Now I hope we're on common ground. For most of us, the point eventually arrives when, at least for an hour or a day or a season, we have to take notice of our human propensity to screw things up. <laughs> because there does seem to be this very real thing, which is that we do things and believe things and experience things that, that war against what we've been talking about today. Right. Um, now, there's this central uh, ritual or sacred practice in the church um, that for 2,000 years has been with the church. And it's a sacrament for people who I think understand, at, at least at some level, I am here to bear the image of God, and yet I haven't. And I want it to be healed and restored. I want to, I want to return to that. And I think that Jesus is the one to lead me back into that. There's a ritual for that. We call it baptism. And baptism is coming up in October. And really, th these next several weeks, uh, one, of, one of the things that we designed the next several weeks to do is just to, to help one another walk into that experience. So baptism is coming up October 10th and 13th. You'll hear more about that in the weeks ahead. But we want to give you a chance over these next several weeks to just reflect, to meditate, to pray, to think about, about whether, whether you want to follow Jesus back into the fullness of who you are and what you are here for. So that's coming up. Uh, that certainly won't be for everyone in the community because um, some people have already had that experience and others aren't there, and that's fine. Uh, but we also have kind of an all-skate opportunity in the next few weeks to go a little further with these ideas, right? Beth, will you tell yeah, us about that? Absolutely. So we're going to provide a reflection and a meditation for you um, over the next few weeks as you leave each weekend gathering. And um, the reflection is often going to be a question. So this week we're going to reflect on this idea of, um, is the life that I'm living the life that longs to live in me? The actual quote from Parker Palmer is, the life I'm living the same as the life that wants to live in me. Um, I'm just going to pause real quick, and I think, you know, we have to ask this question for ourselves, but we also have to ask this question for the way that we've shown up in the world around us, right? Because those words spoken over me, Beth, you're going to be a great soccer mom, those came from a place of love, from a place of encouragement, from someone who was calling out the nurturing quality that they saw in me, not from a place of wanting to box me in or pigeonhole me or whatever. So I think it's a reflection for us as individuals, and both internally and externally, is what I'm trying to say. So we have a reflection, and then we have a meditation, and that meditation um, is going to be this verse that we talked about in the very beginning, John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Um, so this will show up in our social media accounts, as well as on the blog on our website, um, and this really is for you just to, just to reflect and meditate as the week goes on. So that will be posted today, hopefully as you're leaving um, the gathering and, or later on today. And, uh, and there are a few other questions that go along with it. If you want to take it deeper with your family or with your community group or your table, um, wherever you show up and like to have these conversations. So, awesome. Yeah. Will you guys say thank you to Beth for joining us today? Yeah, right? And I also, I also asked Beth if she, would, uh, if she would give us a benediction for the day. So if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And she'll, uh, she'll lead us out of here. Yeah, I actually wrote it down just because I wanted to be intentional about the words I was saying. So this week, may you see the dignity in you just as much as you see the dignity in me. May you fully embrace your identity as an icon, an image bearer of God, and the idea that you were meant to do greater things. 
May you have the courage to throw off the limiting factors that have really been weighing you down. May you call out the dignity in the world around you. And may grace and peace be with you. And also with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Beth. Love you guys. Yeah, See you next week.